So for this week on Cognitive Revolution, we have Alan Baddeley. He is a professor of psychology at the University of York, and he is most known for his development of a model of working memory, really the model of working memory, which sort of won out in the uh, history of uh, memory research and became one of the most significant models and ideas in all of cognitive psychology. He, a couple years back, wrote a sort of career retrospective called Working Memories, which sort of looks at his upbringing, where his ideas came from, his experiences in the world he saw around him during the cognitive revolution. Uh, We get into that history, sort of where his ideas came from, and just his overall sort of view on what psychology looks like, how it's different than it was back in the day, and what he'd like to see from it going forward. So it was a fun interview, and it's great to hear from uh, a guy like that who's been around for so long and seen so much and has so much to offer. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Here is Alan Bannon. I want to ask you, I want to jump back into your story a little bit. And uh, I read uh, in in your book and, and also somewhere else that it was actually Bertrand Russell in part who inspired you to start in as a psychologist. So what did that look like? Um, well, he wrote a series of very clear philosophy books. Um, well, I suppose starting with the history of Western philosophy, which is still, you know, uh, well worth having. One of my sons found it on my shelf and said, could he borrow it (laughs) and keep it? Um, And he was someone who, having published, uh, I think it was called Principia Mathematica, which was hugely erudite and based on mathematical logic, he said he could then afford to write clearly and people would still respect him. And he did write beautifully clearly and in fact was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, not for his philosophy. But he wrote things like, um, oh, things about political systems, Roads to Freedom. So it would be about um, anarchism and syndicalism and communism and as a teenager I'd read these and find them really stimulating and um, he was very very clear and simple style Um, and I remember hearing him being interviewed on the radio and one of the things I remember maybe it's a confabulation but I've always thought I remembered it was that if he was starting again he thought he might be a psychologist and I thought, well, okay, if it's good enough for him, I should try it. Um, I also heard a, a program about um, amnesia and brain damage. I mean, it was pre-HM. This would be in the uh, about 1951 or something. But you know, clearly there was lots of neuropsychology and behavioral neurology around before then, although it wasn't nearly so well known. So those two pointed me in the direction of thinking, well, I was quite interested in philosophy, but didn't think I could earn a living as a philosopher. Um, Psychology 
seemed like something that might be a bit close to it. And I had a friend whose father was a, a Methodist minister who had a degree in psychology and I went and talked to him. He lent me some pre-war books which I found really very interesting and decided that that was for me and it, I was really lucky. I fell on my feet. Um, that all happened initially because I wanted to go to Oxbridge and uh, I sat the exam um, and I'd done geography, English and history and uh, most of the exams at that time were all for individual colleges and most of them were for a single subject or for sciences that, where there would be three. Um, most people at grammar school as opposed to private public school um, would do several, so three topics and so it didn't really map on very much to the Oxbridge system. Um, and I applied to do geography because that interested me at the time. Didn't get in and then thought, well, do I really want to do geography? Is there a philosophy of geography? How deep is it? Uh, and then got into psychology and uh, knew I didn't want, I wanted to go away to university. Um, I, I all, again, I fell on my feet. My headmaster had um, a next-door neighbour who was a lecturer in psychology at Leeds University, which is where I lived, and I went and talked to him. And he suggested uh, University College London. And so I applied, went down and was interviewed and put through various tests, which I was told wouldn't be used for selection. Um, anyway, I got accepted and within a matter of weeks I knew it was what I wanted to do. And I've been enjoying it ever since. And there was a sort of another happenstance in there, which was that you began studying memory, specifically as a topic, purely because it was, it was the only position available, um, I think that was a little later on. But so how, how did that come about? Um, well... I decided I'd, I'd quite like to go on and maybe become a, a lecturer in psychology and do a PhD first, <clears throat> but there were no jobs around, not many PhD places, so I thought I'd try and put things off a bit. So I decided I'd like to go to the States for a year and I applied to a number of places and was accepted at Princeton. <clears throat> um, I didn't want to emigrate to the US, um, but I, I wanted to spend a year there and I think they assumed I'd stayed for a PhD, but I didn't and I did a master's which was basically the exams part of the PhD and then came back expecting to go into the army or the navy because uh, prescription, conscription was for two years at that time. Uh, in fact they were um, cutting down on it at that time and uh, my doctor said do you want to go and I said no he said well you had asthma when you were younger I'll write you a, a, a chit and I, I got not to go but I didn't have a job but I had spent uh, the summer before I went to the States at a place called the Applied Psychology Unit in Cambridge 
which was run at the time by Donald Broadbent. Um, and I did a project there and I wrote it up. Um, and the then director, the director before Broadbent, um, was interested in appointing me but didn't have any posts. Then a post cropped up to study postcodes under Conrad. And um, so I accepted that. I read Broadbent's book and got interested in vigilance and argued with him about whether he was right or not on the theory and could I do it on vigilance and he said no you're you're you're, you're appointed to work on on codes um, but why don't you collaborate with a, another chap Peter Cohen so I did um, but I, I worked on memory because that, that was what I was paid to work on and um, I was just interested in in psychology probably if I'd been left to go on and do a PhD I'd have probably done it on partial reinforcement in rats and looking at it from a cognitive perceptual viewpoint um, I'm glad I didn't but, uh, anyway that's how I got into memory and um, I liked it and um, it's kept me busy for um, well many years 60 years I suppose well it's kept a lot of people busy there's no doubt about that um, so, uh, while you were still incubating your famous model of working memory, it, uh, I read that you got asked by Gordon Bauer to write a chapter on it, and you and your co-author sort of equivocated. Um, but then, uh, as you write, you said, oh, what the hell, let's go for it. Um, and there's a sort of lesson, there's a, there's a lesson to me there, which is that oftentimes it's necessary to let our ideas see the light of day before before we're 100% sure that, that they're ready. And so, uh, yeah, what do, you, what do you make of that episode? Um, I think you're right. Um, it was an opportunity. We'd done quite a bit. We had a, an idea as to a sort of model that was going to be different from the Atkinson and Schifrin one, um, but a development from it. Um, and we'd been thinking about it, and we thought, well, it's not complete yet, um, but, you know, there's enough there to write up. Uh, and so we did. We didn't expect it to take off in the way that it did. And it didn't initially over the next year or two. Um, there are very few citations to working memory. In some ways, that was a blessing because it meant that we could get on with it without having to worry about um, whether other people were replicating or failing to replicate or coming up with other interpretations and so we could just concentrate on what we were doing it was respectable um, it was um, people were interested in it um, and it was linked to application which um, suited both of us very well because we both trained at the Applied Psychology Unit in Cambridge which was essentially tasked with bridging basic and applied research and it's something I still do. So yeah, go for it. <laughs> uh, another thing that I'm interested in is that uh, you mentioned that you were influenced by a book called The Third Ear on Psychoanalysis by Theodore Reich. 
So what, what significance did that book have for you? What, what were some other books that held a lot of weight for you early on in your development? Right. Well, it didn't actually hold a lot of weight for me. It just seemed a, a fun way to earn a living, interpreting people's dreams. Uh, and he was an interesting character. But um, um, I, more or less as soon as I started learning about Freud, I, I rather went off him because the link between the evidence and the theory was so vague that I could always tell a similar story and I used to entertain my friends at breakfast by interpreting their dreams in the most lurid way possible. <laughs> Fortunately they didn't, didn't believe me, although one chap did and got quite worried. But, uh, so I, I wasn't so keen on that. I have a similar feeling about Piaget who has been I think really very influential in um, empirically, but again, he's someone who had grand theories and interesting, rich data uh, with a very um, shaky link between them. And I think I'd been influenced in that by um, my master's thesis that I'd done in Princeton, which was on basically um, Hull versus Tolman's approach to rats and whether rats were stimulus response uh, creatures or whether they had cognitive maps. And I did what I thought was quite an ingenious experiment that was very hard to interpret in terms of the stimulus response approach. Um, but by the time it came out, the whole of that approach from dominating a lot of experimental psychology had collapsed virtually overnight and people just moved away. And I decided then that when I built theories, I wanted them to be close to the data. So you build up from the foundations, you don't build down from the grand ideas. It's great to have grand ideas that help guide you, but unless you get data that um, allow you to either develop them or move in a different direction, um, you're likely to go in circles. And I've I suppose followed that ever since. That's interesting. Um, I guess I'm a little bit more sympathetic to the Piaget approach, and it seems to me that there is a sort of uh, maybe a, a little bit of a symbiosis here, right? And, and, and maybe you could think of it as sort of a, a bi-directional search algorithm, right? Where one, the bottom-up strategy that you're describing is that we have very concrete things that we can say based off of what we have in front of us, and we're going to progress from there down a sort of logically extended path from the, the sort of premises and propositions that we've proved based on our evidence. Um, but there still seems to me to be quite a bit of room for wild speculation in the hopes that some of it will actually prove incisive and stick later on down the line, no matter how harebrained and uh, you know, sort of unfounded, it seems, 50 years after the fact. Right, except Piaget didn't see what he was proposing as wild speculation. He saw it as a, an important system that his disciples should follow. <laughs> and lots of people did, and it led to, um, I think, he was clearly an ingenious experimenter and discovered lots of interesting things, 
um, and a rather grand theorist um, who I suppose it's partly that he was someone who seemed to have disciples who were who followed him and I thought I think that was rather unhelpful for the area in general but clearly he made contributions it's just wasn't wasn't the direction I wanted to go in. <laughs> uh, fair enough. You know, there's another book that you you mentioned that I, I'd never heard of, but I was quite interested in. Uh, was Remembering by Sir Frederick Bartlett. Mm-hmm. Uh, what 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 was that book about, and then what did, what role did it play for you? Well, Bartlett was a sort of grandfather figure. Um, I knew him somewhat when I was at the unit first time. He'd retired by then. Um, but he was a very influential figure in um, British psychology, particularly, and also in cognitive psychology more generally, um, perhaps subsequently more than during his lifetime. Um, he was someone who started off in philosophy, um, moved to social psychology, um, and from there um, became interested in memory and interested in real-world memory, things like remembering stories or remembering drawings, and was very much against the um, very detailed Ebbinghaus approach where you have very simple, meaningless material that you remember and then you plot um, relationships with that. Um, he subsequently um, came up with the idea of a, a schema which has been very influential. Um, when I learned about him from prob probably people who'd been his students, um, he was regarded as someone who had these interesting ideas, um, but they weren't testable. They weren't, you couldn't represent them. Now, in fact, with the development of the computer, they did become testable and they did become more influential than in Bartlett's day, when probably North America was dominated by neo-behaviorism and Britain and Europe much less so. And I think with the cognitive revolution, people rediscovered Bartlett. So far as my own career is concerned, he was the person who founded the Applied Psychology Unit, where I've spent 30 years of my life. Um, and its first director, a guy called Kenneth Craig, um, was the one person that more or less everyone who knew him regarded as a genius. He um, wrote a little book um, called The Nature of Explanation, which presents I think for the first time the idea of a model as a way of instantiating a theory and he was the first person I think to apply this to psychological data. He was working during the war on gun aiming and using um, analog computers as a way of modeling it. Um, digital computers were only just being invented then and so weren't around. But tragically, he was killed in a road traffic accident on um, VE Day, which is the uh, 
I think maybe 1945, this date. Uh, and Bartlett himself took over, then he retired and passed on to a chap called Norman Mackworth, who was then succeeded by Broadbent. And so he was responsible for setting up the Applied Psychology Unit uh, and was very much someone who was interested in bridging basic and applied psychology um, from a, a broad perspective. Yeah, so uh, you started to get into it a little bit with mentioning the cognitive revolution, but I want to I wanna talk about your book from a couple of years back, Working Memories, which is such a delightful title that I suspect uh, you may have actually come up with the term working memory all those years ago just so you could give this title to your career retrospective. Um, oh, that I mean, I can only imagine the the eureka moment uh, when you realize that the the whole project was worth doing, if if for no other reason than that than that uh, that delightful piece of uh, bon mot right there. Anyway, so what I'm curious about is, so how do how do you think your experience of the cognitive evolution differed than someone who lived and worked in the U.S., say in in Boston? And uh, in, in, in what ways would you, would you think of that as an advantage or a disadvantage to the perspective you had? Um, I think it was an advantage because um, I came from a much more broad cognitive background. Um, as George Miller pointed out, that um, Europe in general didn't need a cognitive revolution. It was already cognitive psychology, quite quite broadly considered. Um, the cognitive revolution in the US was, I think, probably the information processing revolution. Um, and to find partly um, in terms of the development of the, the digital computer. Um, at that time, however, even before then, a, a broadly information processing approach had been developed by Kenneth Craig and was already being used by Broadbent, who um, I'm told didn't regard himself as a cognitive psychologist. I'm not quite sure what he, he probably just said he was a, an, um, an experimental psychologist. And I, just, I, I wonder if it might have been uh, that he was slightly miffed that it was named by Ulrich Neisser some 10 years later. And, uh, <laughs> um, because he, um, his perception and communication did have models that were attempting very broadly to map empirical data, much of it collected during the war, onto an underlying information processing approach, uh, which was very innovative and very novel. Um, similarly, um, Gestalt tradition, we, we learnt about, and um, a, a whole range of um, cybernetics. As an undergraduate, we um, would read Norbert Wiener and um, a book called The, the Living Brain by a, a brilliant neurophysiologist called Gray Walter, um, who uh, built 
uh, simulations. So he had a what he called a tortoise that was a system that would uh, search around and find its source of electricity. And it was a relatively simple system, but it, um, in a sense, had purpose. And I liked it because it refuted the philosophers who said purpose is, is a teleological word and has no part in any explanation. You could say, well, what about this tortoise, which is you know, just a, a few batteries and a couple of relays. Um, so it was a very rich background um, at a time when North America was very strongly um, neo-behaviorist, um, but with obviously other influences coming in. Um, people like, um, gosh, I'm blocking on names now, Paul Fitz in the US who was um, very like um, Broadbent and the unit. We, he was probably our closest link. Uh, and was, I think, Mike Posner's mentor. He unfortunately died young, but there were a lot of develop parallel developments, often based on applied work that had been done during the war. But quite a number of applied people then went back to uh, academic uh, psychology, asking old questions again, rather than building on new foundations and, and that tended to happen a little bit later in, in cognitive psychology at least. So I think as a cognitive psychologist I felt, to be honest, that we were rather ahead of the game. Although clearly in areas like AI we weren't and, and linguistics. There's something that strikes me as very American about the the concept of creating this large problem. Uh, behaviorism, and then declaring victory when we ourselves uh, go on and, and solve that problem, which came about of our of our own creation. Uh, that 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 uh, that sounds exactly like something that we would be inclined to do. Well, we're all inclined to do that. <laughs> uh, so, did you did you have much correspondence with George Miller? Um. I didn't correspond with him. I met him once or twice. Uh, I argued with him once. <laughs> um, so what did that what did that argument look like? Well, it was basically it it was a chance when I was a uh, just finishing my PhD, and there was a, an article published by. Uh, George Miller, Jerry Bruner, and Leo Postman jointly, there can't be many articles that have those three, uh, on basically applying information theory to, to kistoscopic perception. And what they showed was that if you measure the information content of sequences of letters from random up through uh, pseudo-random up to words, then the more it approximates to English, then the more accurate the, the kistoscopic perception. Now, I'd been working on this as part of my PhD, and I knew it was a memory effect. And so I published a, a, a short study 
pointing out that if you allowed people long enough to absorb all of the perception, you still got the same results. And so it wasn't a perceptual effect, it was a memory effect. Um, at the same time, Endel Tolving also took issue with them and published um, a critique pointing out that they'd got their calculation of the information rate wrong. But Engel also got it wrong because he forgot that um, the first and last letters, you have to take into account the fact that they're preceded or followed by a space. And I was able to um, refute Engel and point out that if you include, included spaces, um, they were more right than he was. And many, many years after, on his 80th birthday party, when he invited lots of people to uh, Tallinn, if we went to Tallinn, we could help him celebrate, and we did. His daughters, who commented on how it was very difficult to prove he was ever wrong, um, actually said, we'll give a prize to anyone who, who can prove Endel was wrong. And I rushed forward and described this case and Endel accepted. And I still have my prize, which is uh, a bottle of beer from Tallinn. That sounds like one of the most auspicious moments of your career. Yeah, and I've just written an, a, a piece on it. There's uh, not just on this, but also on uh, coming up with a, a maybe an alternative interpretation of the um, the hippocampus but that started off as a, a piece on trying to prove Endel wrong for a special issue of um, neuropsychologia where in trying to prove prove he was wrong I gave an example of um, one of our uh, discussions and arguments about whether whether what he said uh, was true or not and eventually it turned out as often it did that um, basically uh, it was a question of terminology um, and then I, anyhow after uh, moving on and um, disagreeing with him on whether uh, semantic and episodic memory involved separate systems I agreed with him that they did and then suddenly in writing this article I thought of a way around that I could still defend my earlier position by assuming that the hippocampus is not a general memory system but is a system for attaching environmentally related retrieval cues and that I think fits in quite nicely with lots of evidence including stuff that I've done on patients who have uh, a very specific hippocampal deficit. Sorry, I'm rambling on, but I assume you can trim all this down. Anyway, it's all going to come out in neuropsychology. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that, that's definitely something that I've been fascinated in in my modest studies of memory is um, the role that context plays in um, our associations that we learn and, and um, how th those are also retrieved. So um, 
Yeah, so one thing that I'm interested in here is that, so you've, you've mentioned, you know, information theory a couple times, and, and uh, you know, there's obviously a very technical side to the ideas that you've come up with. Uh, but if if I am reading correctly through, uh, you know, your assessment of your own life, you're, you're not all that good at maths, or at least you weren't very well, you weren't trained in it as much as other people were. So what, I mean, what do you make of that? Um, sort of juxtaposition there? Um, well, uh, um, why was, not, was I no good at maths? <clears throat> I think partly when I, I moved from my primary school to what was then called a grammar school, which would be a high school that was, you, you had to pass an exam to get in. <clears throat> and I found it, the transition quite difficult. And <clears throat> I suspect things like doing homework, I didn't really get the idea that you actually had to do homework. And so I was consistently near the bottom of the class. And so I probably didn't have a, a very good foundation. And in the case of maths, I, I can remember it being, in a sense, almost, um, I would see addition and subtraction as two armies fighting each other. Uh, and when you transfer that to division and multiplication and so forth, it, it doesn't work very well. So maybe I had the wrong concepts to start with. Um, but, I, you know, I got by. I, I stopped doing it at 16. And um, I am, however, so that means things like math models. Um, I, I don't get on with at all. I'm okay with the concepts, but um, and similarly with statistics. I'm fine at the concepts, but um, not good at proving one thing or the other, and not good at um, using programs, largely because I, uh, computers came along at a time when I didn't really need to program, and I've never learned. So, yes, I um, I wish I were better at maths, and uh, but to some extent it spared me from becoming too entranced with math models, which I can see how attractive they are. Um, but because I'm no good at maths, I was never tempted by them. And I think one of the problems is that the maths can actually seduce you to an extent that you 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 really want the elegant model rather than understanding what's going on underneath it. And so you sit a level above and don't worry about what the subject's actually doing, which I think is important in a, an experimental psychologist. Yeah, it seems to me that it almost wouldn't be... I wouldn't wish it that you were better at, 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 at mathematics um, because it does seem like there has to be a trade-off there. It does... Um, you know, you, you have a limited amount of attention to apply to the problems that you are interested in. And if you had spent your time delving into more technical aspects, um, 
like you were describing with the mathematical models, perhaps the ideas that you would have come up with would have reflected that level of detail and not necessarily the what turned out to be grander ideas that, that your ideas actually, you know, sort of engendered. Uh, so I, I, I think that, uh, that 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 you know might actually have been a great strength of yours. I think you could be right. I was, um, when I was at the um, Institute for Advanced Study in Stanford a few years back, <clears throat> there was a course on statistics taught by Lincoln Moses, who was the emeritus professor of statistics. And I found that at the level he was teaching, I, I felt I could understand better and ask questions better than most people who were actually, you know, practiced in manipulating data because I could stand back and, and see the, um, the questions and the overall concepts. And I found that with AI as well. I, two of my sons have uh, degrees and PhDs in AI and I find I can talk to them about quite general things. Um, whereas I, I can't um, understand at a you know, detailed level. I tried at one stage to felt I should learn some maths and so I went along to the local tech technical college for evening classes and went up to the maths chap who was signing people up and I said I'd, I'd like to sign up for something that might be useful for psychology and he said oh if I were you I'd stay well away from that. Uh, I said, well, actually, I'm a psychologist. Oh, <laughs> in that case, um, I, I think you should do calculus. And I found with doing calculus, it was very obvious until suddenly it wasn't obvious. And it was how you get out of that hole that I didn't get and where a good teacher would help you. Um, so... Might I have been good at maths? I assume I probably could have got by, but I'm, I'm not sorry I'm not a mathematical psychologist. I think that's a difference between North America and, and the UK in that math psychology is, is a branch of psychology in the States to a much greater extent than it is here, where the math psychologists, people like Tim Chalice, moved out um, relatively early uh, and math models are seen as a, as a tool rather than an end point. I would uh, agree with that assessment, sort of having seen both sides of the Atlantic on that. I want to uh, jump back to the cognitive evolution though and I'm wondering if there is, because you were describing how your perception of it was different um, being in the UK where it was less of a revolution paradigm shift and more of a continuation of what was already happening. So from that perspective, was there a moment that stood out to you that was like, oh, wow, something, something really big is happening here? Maybe in your own circles and areas, but also you know, observing your, your colleagues in America and that sort of stuff. Was there any one moment that stood out to you? Uh, there was, actually. Um, the year I graduated, before I went to Princeton, I was offered a summer job at the MRC Applied Psychology Unit in Cambridge. And I talked a lot to a very bright PhD student. 
um, who was very influenced by Craig's ideas, information theory, and um, areas like theory of games. Um, and so at that time, I, I really liked the way in which you could have theoretical ideas that were interesting, that were ambitious, but that could be tied to the data at a, a very basic level. Uh, and at that time in Princeton, no, nobody was operating at that level. Now Princeton wasn't at its greatest at that time. It had just moved from being a largely clinical department and hadn't really developed uh, greatly from there. Um, and there were other areas um, like for example, people like Paul Fitz, who I think was at Ohio State, uh, where I would have found it very different. But I think the overall tenor of North American psychology um, was rather slower to catch on onto that. Of course, cognitive science is much broader than cognitive psychology. Uh, and from that point of view, computer science was uh, much more advanced in the US and continued to be largely because it was um, very much um, re reduced by a government report on uh, artificial intelligence by a mathematician called Lighthill, an applied mathematician. And at the time, it's certainly the case that AI in UK at least, possibly more generally, probably more generally, made very grand claims, which, um, you know, they say things like, well, I don't know why you're worrying about psychology, we've got all, we're going to have explained everything in the next 10 years, uh, or five years, or what have you, which was great fun to argue with. Um, but he was very negative about it, and the government withdrew funds, didn't kill it, but it did mean that from being quite close to um, the frontiers, it really um, was held back for by quite a few years and suffered from that. So I think clearly cognitive science is much broader uh, than cognitive psychology. But I think as far as cognitive psychology is concerned, um, I was lucky in that I had such a, a broad education. Very interesting. So uh, there is one last thing I want to ask you about here, and that's that um, in another interview you mentioned the concept of mental energy and how that's um, a concept you think we should bring back into psychology. So what, what's the idea there? It can be approached from a number of points of view. Let's start at the very general, as a, as a personality trait. Um, to achieve anything, you need energy. And being highly intelligent, but having no energy, you're not going to achieve very much. And it's a personality characteristic. And at the same time, it's something that depends on the physical basis. I can remember uh, an, an occasion of, I was in Aberdeen, I'm collaborating with colleagues up there, and I happened to get food poisoning rather badly and um, I was up all night and the following morning my friend Sergio de la Sala rung and, 
and said, you know, I'll, um, I'll come around and keep you company. Uh, and I said, you must be, he said, you must be very bored. And I remember thinking, I don't have the energy to be bored. Just nothing. I just wanted to exist. But also, in terms of cognitive psychology, um, it's, it's concerned with control. But what are you controlling? What makes it go? Um, you need something in, in terms of decisions. Um, but so how, how is his concept of mental energy different than motivation? Um, I think motivation is um, more, more general and more specific. So you could be very, have, have lots of energy, but no motivation, in which case maybe something like ADHD would be a case where you're, you're really wired up. Um, you have energy, you're bouncing off the walls, but you're not really motivated to do anything. It's also related to the concept of arousal, but arousal is too non-directional. I think motivational is too high level in terms of the way in which the energy is controlled. And I suppose it comes partly from my book, Working Memory, Thought and Action, trying to work out what's the role of working memory in action. Not only in what you do, but how hard you do it. It's also, I think, related to the concept of, of willpower um, and the, the stuff that, um, gosh, blocking on his name. Anyway, willpower. Uh, which I think is, is a sort of, in a sense, an outdated concept, but actually um, conveys something important. Um, so I think it's a whole very important area that we're just not looking at enough. I think there probably are um, some people starting to do it. And I suppose I keep harping on about it because I think it would be nice if I was starting again think it's where I would look as a cognitive psychologist to, to bridge cognition. And in, in fact, the old tripartite dis division was um, between um, cognition, um, emotion, and what used to be called conation, which was the willpower. Uh, and I think the conation is important and somewhat neglected and um, would be fun to explore. It's partly because I like exploring areas that there aren't already too many people. Don't have to read so many papers then. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to expend as much mental energy in, in getting caught up on the... That's right, and in controversies and somebody fails to replicate your experiment and you have to go and argue out why and what they've got wrong or what you've got wrong and I just want to go on and um, find out new things and if they work fine and if they don't then I um, move slightly in another direction you know it, I, for me it's like exploring 
you know, you find some blind alleys, but provided you don't get stuck in them, um, great. Well, I think that's a very apt way to sort of wrap up our conversation here, because I think one one thing that really stands out to me about your canon of, of, of career and work is that there's this interesting tension between your sense of curiosity and, and, and adventure and your pragmatism. And what I mean is that, um, you know, so you mentioned... Uh, at least in your in your book, about how you were very much drawn to the idea of being uh, an adventurer and uh, literally going out into the world and charting new areas. Uh, it turned out that the sort of tides of colonialism weren't exactly in your favor for doing that. Um, but I think that that sense of curiosity and being driven to a sort of new frontier of ideas is evident in your academic work. And uh, I think what's an interesting contrast is that is that there's so much of the um, important milestones in your career are, you know, things like, you know, when you started studying memory, well, that was because that was the only thing you could get a job in. And that's a very pragmatic, um, very, um, you know, and then also the way you were talking about approaching big ideas, which is like, okay, well, let's have the evidence that we have in front of us. And let's take steps, you know, maybe sizable steps, but let's take steps from those um, and, 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 and see where that gets us. And so that there's a uh, maybe, maybe, a, maybe a true adventurer's um, tension between that desire to be in the, you know, great out there while also realizing the only thing you can do in the moment is uh, the step that's in front of you. And I think that's really cool to see in something that is inspiring to me uh, as a young cognitive scientist and um, something that I hope other people will look at your uh, career and work and, and take from. So, Well, I, I hope they do. It's, it's been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. This has been great. All right. That was my conversation with Alan Baddeley. I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening. I am Cody Commerce, and I will see you back here next week for another episode of Cognitive Revolution.